Ruth chapter 4. And let me begin by telling you a true story about a Los Angeles Dodgers baseball player named Lou Johnson. And they won the World Series in 1965. In fact, he hit the game-winning home run. And so it was a really magical, exciting time in Lou Johnson's life. But he had a problem, and he fell into drugs. And because of that, he lost his position, he lost his uniform, he lost his game-winning bat, um, he even lost his world championship, uh, world series ring. And that was the biggest loss of all to him. Well, 30 years later, um, the president of the LA Dodgers, Bob Graziano, happened to come across and find out that, that Lou Johnson's championship ring was being auctioned on the internet, and he bought it for $3,457. And so he presented that ring, this is 30 years after he lost it, he presented that ring to Lou Johnson, and the article I read says Lou Johnson, he cried, and he said that having that ring back was like something in his heart was, was reborn. That is a picture of redemption. Redemption is losing something that's very special to you, that's very valuable to you, and through the goodness and the grace and the means of somebody else purchasing it and giving it back to you, and then you are redeemed. Now, for example, I have a dog. It's a German shepherd. His name is Spartacus. Spartacus needed a buddy back in the backyard. And so I was going to the dog pound. I was looking for a buddy for Spartacus. And there I see this little mutt. All the other dogs are yapping and barking, but she's just sitting there. She's not barking. She's being very sweet. And I said, oh, okay, well, this would be a good dog to have in the backyard with Spartacus. So I buy this dog, $50. You want to know what I did? I redeemed her. I set her free. Now this is the subject of the entire book of Ruth that we're talking about, and specifically Ruth chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, open it to Ruth chapter 4, your, your phones, your iPads, what, whatever you have. I do encourage you to have a Bible, because then you can underline it, and you can circle words, and it's easier to memorize, and you'll be more encouraged to read it throughout the week, because we are people of the book. We are followers of Christ. This is the bread of life. We've got to be in the Word every day to have faith that's strong, to have faith that overcomes. If we're not in the Word every day, then our faith is going to be weak. It's going to be anemic. One of the reasons that many of you are discouraged and that you're always depressed and that your problems are always looming larger than you is because you're not in the Word every day and your faith is weak and it's anemic and it's sick and it's frail because you're not in the Word. So we've got to be in the Word every single day. Ruth chapter 4. Now let me set us up before we walk into Ruth chapter 4 and, and finish up this incredible book that we've been in together. Uh, let, me, let me just review it, okay? Ruth chapter 1. We're introduced to two people, Naomi and Ruth. And at the end of Ruth chapter 1, we see that they are both broken. They are barren. They are destitute. They are desperate. They are without food. They are without family. They are widows who are barren. And there's nothing, there's no way that their family line, their lineage, their husband's names will be perpetuated, will be carried on through them. And they're just trying to make it from day to day. They are beggars. They left Bethlehem to go to Moab. It was an ungodly decision. It resulted in the death of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons. And one of her sons married a Moabite woman named Ruth. Ruth. 
And then by the end of chapter 1, they returned to Bethlehem and they said, Naomi, which means pleasant, has returned. And Naomi, this mother-in-law, says, don't you call me pleasant, call me Mara, because that means bitter. So, that's the end of chapter 1. But then we enter into chapter 2, and we see that there is a man. Enter the hero of the story. His name is Boaz. He's a very close relationship to, uh, to, to Naomi and Naomi's son, who is now deceased, but he married Ruth. And he's a wealthy man, and he's a man of noble character. And Ruth is working his field with the other servants, with the other peasants, because in that culture, there was a welfare system that God instituted, but it was really ingenious. It required a bit of a tax from those with the wealthy, but so long as those in need worked for it. So they were able to, they were able to um, go into the land of the people who are harvesting their field, but God told them, only go through and harvest at one time. Don't comb back through your land. So then the peasants and the poor people and those who are desperate and destitute without food and family can come back and walk through the land again and pick up what you missed. Furthermore, don't even cut the corners when you harvest your property, but just sort of sweep around so that the desperate and the destitute without food and family can go through and they can pick up the corners. That was Ruth. She was in Boaz's land. And then, and then Boaz notices her. She's a beautiful girl. And then we saw that last week in Ruth chapter 3 is Brandon taught that there was something really special and beautiful about her. And, and Boaz noticed her and he was kind to her. And then on the advice of Naomi, because things weren't happening fast enough for Naomi, the mother-in-law. I mean, Boaz noticed Ruth, but then weeks, even months went by and Boaz didn't pursue Ruth. But then we see something that was just downright shady in Ruth chapter 3, and, and, but it was also beautiful and it was innocent, and, and Ruth takes the initiative and actually proposes, in a unique means in their culture, she proposes to Boaz. And so here we have the Bible gives some really in-depth detail in Ruth chapter 3. Basically, Ruth and Boaz spend a couple of hours just staring up into the sky, counting stars, a really beautiful thing. And Boaz explains to Ruth the law in their culture of the kinsman redeemer. So let me read about the kinsman redeemer to you guys. All right. So we'll start out. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, I'll just read this to you, but this is God's law to his people through Moses. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, watch this, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me, a redeemer. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, and watch this in this culture, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what's done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. 
The man's line shall be known as, in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Wow, take that, huh? So it's very important that this law of redemption takes place. But, but it applied not only to a deceased whose lineage was cut off, but it also applied to land. Watch this in Leviticus, Leviticus 20, chapter 25, and I'll just pick up with verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, thus Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth chapter 1 and their sons, and they obviously had to sell off their land or they, they lost their land, it was foreclosed on. And so they went to Moab, they left Bethlehem, the house of bread that had no bread in the midst of a famine in the days of the judges. And they went to Moab, that scandalous country that had enmity with God's people, whose women had a reputation for being sexually immoral and seductive to the extent that in the Pentateuch we saw they seduced Israelite men. And as a result, 24,000 Israelites died. Elimelech, this Hebrew, left God's promised land to go to, of all places, Moab. And he lost his land in the midst of this famine. Well, in a situation like that, because God gave the land to his people, God wanted his land, the promised land, to stay in the ownership of his people. But furthermore, when God did give his people the land to inherit it, uh, you know how the United States has 50 states, right? Well, God's people was familial. That means they were made up of tribes or clans. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob through Rachel and Leah, had 12 sons. These 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. So when they did occupy the land, they occupied it uh, in segments based upon their family tribe or clan. And so this law of kinsman redemption allowed people not only to maintain their land, but also allowed tribes and clans to maintain their geographical possession of God's promised land. That's the way that God wanted it. So God instituted this law of redemption to ensure that not only his land stayed in the possession of his people, but also it stayed in the possession of his people in their familial jurisdictions. So Leviticus twenty-five twenty-five: If one of your fellow Israelites, Elimelech and Naomi, becomes poor and sells some of their property and moves off to Moab and loses everything and the men die. And Their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. There's a law that they can buy it back. But you have to be the nearest relative. And the nearest relative has to be able to buy it back. If, however, there's no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they can come and they can buy it back. With that context, we enter Ruth chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would open our heart and you would allow your Holy Spirit to minister to us and see this principle of redemption in a matter, in a manner, in a practical application that stirs us into a place of complete consecration and surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile... Boaz went up to the town gate because he just told Ruth in Ruth chapter 3, as Brandon talked about last week, you could have gone after any of the younger men 
Uh, Boaz was older, perhaps never married. Ruth was younger. She was beautiful. She caught the eye of many people. And Boaz says, you could have run after many, many young men have financial means. But you've come and you've humbled yourself before me and you've basically proposed to me. He said, I'm very humbled. I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to marry you. And I'm going to redeem your, your, your deceased husband's name. And I'm going to redeem the land. And we're going to be a blessing to your mother-in-law. But there's a relative who's closer in relation than me. That means he has first right. He has first dibs. And so if he chooses to redeem you, then you'll be redeemed by him. But if not, well, then true love is going to be able to blossom. And this will be a really beautiful story. And what we're going to see in Ruth chapter 4 is that this whole love story of Ruth is a lot like... Did you guys... Years ago, this movie came out but with Bruce Willis. Do you remember that movie, I See Dead People, with that kid? I forget the name of the movie. Do you all... Six cents, yes. Okay. And at the end of the movie, do you remember... Okay, spoiler alert. <laughs> it's been out a while. I can give a spoiler. All right. Do you remember at the end of the movie, the kid who had the sixth sense that saw dead people? Then you realize Bruce Willis throughout the whole movie had been dead. And then you look back at all those scenes in the movie and you realize... Wow, he was dead, right? And so what does it make you want to do? It makes you want to go back and it makes you want to watch the whole movie again. Because something was hidden that came to light and it gave a deeper, fuller context to the whole plot. And that's what happens in Ruth chapter 4. There's something hidden and it's about to come to light and it's going to give it a greater, deeper meaning to this entire love story where we realize it's not just a love story between Boaz and Ruth. It's a love story within a much, much, much greater love story in which we all find ourselves right in the middle today. It's a love story within a love story of God's plan to redeem the world and have a relationship with us. So Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the guardian redeemer, the one who had the closer relationship. And this is the first thing that we realize about a guardian redeemer. A redeemer first and foremost had to have the proper relationship because this land belongs to somebody else now. And so in order for this land to be purchased from that somebody else, to be given back to Naomi and Ruth's family, they have to have a legal relationship. So the one with the legal relationship came along who was closer than Boaz. And Boaz sees him, and Boaz says, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. And interestingly, if you go into the Hebrew and you look at that word, my friend, it's not, it's not such a polite term. It actually has the connotation of, what's your face? Or so-and-so. Have you ever seen somebody come up and you're like, gosh, I really shouldn't know their name. What is their name? What is their name? What is their name? And they come up to you and you're like, hey, buddy, like that. Well, that's what happens here, except for it's a little less friendly than, hey, there, partner, or hey, brother. It's like, hey, what's your face? Why? Well, Boaz knows exactly what he's doing. And he's setting this guy up because this guy's saying, my name is not what's your face. You know my name. Boaz absolutely knew his name because he knew who he was, that he was in closer relation to Naomi to redeem the property than he was. He knew his name. They could have been close relatives. Well, they were close relatives. He knew his name. What's he doing? He's alluding to the curse in Leviticus 25 that we read. If somebody doesn't step up to their plate, their name shall be blotted out. So he's saying, hey, watch your face. And this guy's like, what do you mean? Because two things 
in this culture are critical. Lou Johnson, who lost his World Series ring, the most important thing to him was his World Series ring. My crazy dog, who's still to this day an escape artist, I see exactly why she wound up in the dog pound. The most important thing to her is her freedom. My German shepherd sees the, the fence as his property to protect. This mutt, this crazy mutt Salem, sees the fence as an obstacle to overcome. I see exactly how she wound up in the dog pound. The most important thing to her is her freedom. Well, Bob Graziazzo bought that ring back for Lou Johnson. I bought Salem's freedom back for her. The two most important things in this culture, in this contract, in this context, are land and your family name. That's it. Your land and your family name. Those were God's two greatest blessings to his people. The very thing that God's people had been longing for and praying for and looking toward since the inception as a people. And God looked down and chose Abraham and blessed Abraham and gave him Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob and they had 12 sons. And they wound up eventually four or 500 years later in bondage in Egypt. And then they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. The very most important thing to this people were their land and their family name. That it perpetuates, that they have a lineage that continues on. So, we have two widows who are barren, who are destitute, who are desperate, and they have neither land nor family, and their husbands' names have been cut off. So, Boaz says, Hey, so and so, watch your face, come over here. Verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders, as was their custom, and he said, sit here. Now, this is at the gate, and this is where people are coming and going. This is the, this is the center of, of, of life in this community. And so here's ten elders, he brings them, and when something like this happens, as we see that the crowd grew, and so people are beginning to assemble, and the crowd's going, and I mean, they didn't have movies to go to, they didn't have Little League baseball games, and so I mean, this is their entertainment, so something's happening, something's exciting, so now there's a big crowd that's gathering around around to see what unfolds. And then Boaz says to the man in verse 3, to the guardian redeemer, Naomi who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So the first thing that we see about the Redeemer is this. A Redeemer has to have the right to redeem the land. He has to have the relationship to redeem the land. The second thing that we see about the Redeemer is this. He has to have the proper resources in order to redeem the land. He has to have the capital. He has to have the financial means. In this context, in this culture, it's fair. You can't just go take the land away from somebody who's been occupying it for some time. You have to pay fair market value for it. In order for the person who currently has possession of the land not just to be uh, swindled. And this man did have the resources. And he says, I will redeem it. 
Now, if this were a chick flick and we were watching this and he said, I will redeem it, just kind of the wind would be taken out of everybody's cell and all their hearts would sink. Oh, oh man. Because he doesn't love Ruth. He doesn't love Naomi. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't love anybody but, you know, himself. And, and you just see Boaz, this guy, you know, he loved Ruth and he was going for it and, and, and he just lost out. And Ruth and this guy, what's his face, just kind of right off into the sunset and movie's over. And you're like, man, I want my money back, right? But this guy says, I will redeem it. He had the resources. And this was a no-brainer for this kinsman redeemer. It was a no-brainer because this was a good financial decision for him. He's about to probably double his land. He's about to double his assets. He's got the resources. It's a no-brainer. It's going to result in a greater inheritance for his family. So he says, without even thinking about it, okay, sure, no problem, I'll, I'll redeem it. Verse 5, Boaz knows exactly what he's doing. And then he says, see, right here when when we realize that this man, he has the the right and the resources to redeem the land, Boaz put on the table the Leviticus chapter 25 law in relation to the land. But now he puts onto the table the, the Deuteronomy chapter 25 law in relation to the relative and perpetuating the deceased's family line. Verse 5, Boaz says, okay, great, but on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also require Ruth, and then he just throws it out there, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead man with his property. What? The Moabite? I mean, 24,000 Israelites died from messing around with the Moabite. The Moabite? I mean, I mean... Her husband just died. I wonder if she was the cause for that. Is she the curse? Is she the reason for all of these bad things? And then on top of that, he's going to require Ruth the Moabite, so then he's going to have a responsibility to have a child with her, and then his son doesn't get the land. His family doesn't get the land that he was going to acquire from Naomi, which that was a no-brainer, because she was past child-rearing age, and so no problem. Sure, he'll acquire, he'll double his estate, but now he's got to have a child with this girl named Ruth, And that's going to jeopardize his family line, and his wife isn't going to go for that. So verse 6, we see the third characteristic of a redeemer. A redeemer has to have the resolve to redeem the land. He has to have the right. He has to have the relationship. He's got to have the resources. And thirdly, he's got to have the resolve. And this is where this so-and-so face backs out of the deal. Verse 6, at this the guardian redeemer said then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property, you know, there's there's handshakes that seal the deal. There's signing on the dotted line that seal the deal. Well, here in front of 10 elders and in front of many witnesses, here's how they seal the deal in this culture. For the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then... And this is where the, the, uh, the symphony music, m- music begins to swell. And then this is when Boaz steps up to the plate. And we see Ruth, who's probably hiding in the crowd with Naomi. This is when her you know, face just really brightens. And Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, their sons. 
I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Melon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead, the, the, the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses, and by now there's a crowd, and everybody erupts in celebration. And verse 11, then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. This is quite a stout prayer. They are praying for a huge blessing. Between Rachel and Leah, they had 12 children, the 12 tribes, the 12 names of Israel, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah. Uh, Some say that's just another name for Bethlehem. And be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar, which is a really fascinating story, bore to Judah. Now, what a beautiful story. Now, if we were again at a chick flick then we would look at each other and we would say yeah it was great that was a good feel good movie you know all right that's good let's go get some dessert and we would walk out and maybe maybe our back is to the screen and then have you ever been in a movie and you think that it's over and then you see something that's happening on the screen and then you come back down and you sit down and then there's something really awesome that takes place well that's exactly what happens here it was a great story it's a beautiful story it was a story of love it was a story of faithfulness of loyalty it was a story of redemption between Ruth and between Boaz what a sweet story what a beautiful story but then the stuff that happens here makes us realize the story isn't over. In fact, the story is still going. And the story is bigger and grander than we could have ever imagined. And we realize that we are in the middle of this story that's continuing on in a more beautiful and a more powerful capacity than they could have ever imagined. And the first thing that we see from this as we continue with the, with the back end of this story is this. That God brings death to life. God brings us from a place of death into a place of life. Let's continue to read verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And this is one of the many reasons that I want you to actually read the Bible and not just, you know, not just go through it on your, on, on your phone or your iPad or something like that. Because, because you, can, you can underline it. This is a really critical statement. And if you underline this, then you'll really be able to, to, to pull the meaning out of it. And it's a statement that you would have otherwise maybe just glossed right over. Watch this. The Lord enabled her to conceive. It was the Lord who did it. It was the Lord who did it. And anything good that takes place in our life, it's the Lord that does it. And it doesn't matter how broken we are, how deep in despair we are, how hopeless we are. If the Lord touches our life, He brings life out of death. It doesn't matter how tragic the situation it is. If the Lord simply touches it, He brings life out of death. The Lord did it. You, do you remember in Ruth chapter 1, what did we have? We had somebody that was very bitter. And we had somebody who was barren. 
And we had two people who were broken, who were desperate and destitute without food and without family. And do you remember in this series, anytime Ruth is mentioned, it's almost mentioned with a slur because the author is being intentional. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. In every single chapter, it's mentioned a few times. Ruth the Moabite. But here we see Ruth, Boaz's wife. And the Lord did this. It's the Lord who removed her reproach. It's the Lord who redeemed her name. Is somebody slandering you? Have you ever been slandered? Has somebody talked bad about you? Have, have, have you lost something? It's the Lord who redeems it. We don't have to have stress. We don't have to have anxiety. We don't have to have defend ourselves. We just have to put ourselves in a place in order for the Lord to touch us. And he will redeem us. Because the Lord brought death into life. Ruth chapter 1 began with three funerals. And then Ruth chapter 4 ends with Ruth's name being redeemed from Ruth the Moabite to Ruth Boaz's wife and a wedding and a baby that's being born. Is this not beautiful? From, from death to life, Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 1 into Ruth chapter 4, from three funerals to a wedding and a baby. This is what God does. He translates death into life when we put ourselves in a place to be touched by His redemption power. So, we see now that God also, He not only brings us from a place of death to life, but He also brings us from a place of emptiness to fullness. Then the woman said to Naomi, and it's really funny because we don't see Ruth again in Ruth chapter 4. It's just Naomi. It's like the grandma got a hold of the baby and she won't let go. And from here on, it's Naomi surrounding, surrounded by all of these ladies. And she's holding the baby and she doesn't let go. And, then they, and the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout all of Israel, which Boaz was. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, do you remember the daughter-in-law in in Ruth chapter 1? When Naomi told all the ladies, I came back with nothing. And they all looked at Ruth. And Ruth just dropped her head and looked at her feet and said, I guess I'm nothing. Oh, Naomi had no idea that God's hand was present. And God can bring something out of nothing. He can bring fullness out of emptiness. All he has to do is touch it. He will renew your life and sustain you. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who you thought was nothing in Ruth chapter 1, loves you and is better to you than seven sons. And he's given her birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And then here's what we see. We see that when God touches us with his redemption... That he brings us from a place of death to life. And he brings us from a place of emptiness to fullness. And he brings us from a place of barrenness to blessedness. He brings us from a place of barrenness to blessedness. And so they had a baby together. And they named him Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. 
And Jesse was the father of David. In a context of Israel's history that was the darkest season of their history, God gave birth to the single greatest king in their history besides Jesus Christ. But we see that this story goes on. In the Old Testament, the story was powerful enough in terms of redemption, redemptive power and God's glory being manifest in this little love story between Boaz and Ruth. But it was much more. It was much more. It was about God bringing the greatest king into Israel's history during their darkest season. It was King David. But it was even much more than that. Oh, if they could have just fast-forwarded through time. And then you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. And you've seen the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Ruth and Boaz. Because this story perpetuates until the time that Christ himself is born, the redeemer of the entire world. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez. This is an interesting story. Four granddaddies before Obed, four or five granddaddies before Obed, we see Perez. You know whose dad Perez was? Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Judah. Now, Judah had a few sons, and they were married to this... Or Judah had a son, and he was married to this girl named Tamar. Well, Judah's son died, and Tamar is left without a redeemer, and she's left without any, anyone to continue on her, her, her deceased husband's lineage. So she, she, implores, she implores her father-in-law, Judah... To make sure that she has a redeemer. And you know what? Judah doesn't give her the time of the day. He kind of writes her off. No, he absolutely writes her off. This is a shady story. This is actually in the Bible. So you know what Judah, or do you want to know what Tamar does? She dresses up like a prostitute. And she covers her face. And then here comes Judah walking down the road. And he propositions her. Maybe she seduces him, but he propositions her. And he's like, but I don't have any money. Well, I got she goes, well, what do you have? And he says, well, I have a young goat. She says, okay, well, bring me the young goat. But what can you give me for collateral? And he says, well, here, here's my family ring. I'll come back for it and give you the goat and get my ring back. And she says, okay. So they, they, they do their thing, and they, uh, Judah goes on, having no idea that was his daughter-in-law of his son who died. So Judah goes on, and he tells one of his servants, he says, oh yeah, um, and, and you just take this young goat, there's a prostitute, you'll find her. Yeah, I know, don't, don't ask questions kind of thing. And, and just take the young goat, get, get my ring back, and you want to know what? He goes, and he can't find the girl anywhere. And he comes back, and he says, yeah, I couldn't find her. And then Judah just sort of writes it off. He's like, oh well, and they just sort of forget about it. And then she comes up pregnant. And then they bring her in town, and you want to know what? They're going to stone her. They're going to kill her. And just no big deal to Judah. It's like, what? She's pregnant? Okay, yeah, kill her. And then she holds up the ring, and she says in front of everybody, in Judah's hearing, the owner of this ring is the dad. He's busted, isn't he? Well, he's just overcome with repentance, and he says, "I've, I've done you wrong. And so the baby's name is Perez. And we see Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amanadab. Amanadab, the father of Neshon. Neshon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. On to Jesus. You know somebody else that we see in that lineage? Rahab. You know what Rahab was? Rahab was a prostitute. You know who else we see in that lineage? Bathsheba. You know who Bathsheba was? 
Bathsheba had an affair with King David. And together they eventually had a son named Solomon. Here in Christ's lineage, we see Moab the prostitute. We see Tamar. We see Bathsheba. We see Rahab. And we can look at that and we can say, what are they doing in the lineage of the Messiah, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ? What are they doing there? They are there for the exact same reason that you and I are there. We have a Redeemer. And let's look at these three characteristics of a Redeemer. What is a Redeemer? A Redeemer is somebody who has the proper right, the proper relationship to redeem us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's why He stepped out of heaven and God became man. He became our what? Our kinsman in humanity. He was 100% God, but also 100% man. He became our close Relative, He became like us, though without sin. Why? To have the proper relationship in order to redeem us. Did He have the resources? Yes. He has spent all eternity past without sinning once. He spent His entire life, though tempted with an onslaught of temptations and struggles and trials, without ever stumbling, without ever doubting, without ever denying, without ever succumbing. He walked in complete righteousness so that when He shed His blood, it would be sufficient resources to buy us back from sin and death. Now... Yeah, we could praise Jesus for that. Put your hands together. Did Jesus have the resolve to redeem us? You better believe he had the resolve. He went from Bethlehem's manger to Golgotha's cross. He absolutely had the resolve to redeem us. And so here's my question for you. We look at Ruth in Ruth chapter 1. Destitute, desperate, without family, without food. We look at Ruth in chapter 2, a servant. I mean, she's just, she's just gleaning. She's just hoping for leftovers, for scraps. And then we look at Ruth in Ruth chapter 4. She's the wife of Boaz, a place of prominence. She's wealthy. She has family. She's redeemed. Um, how do you get from Ruth chapter 1 and 2 to Ruth chapter 4? How do you get to a place where God touches you and brings you from a place of death to life, from a place of emptiness to fullness, from a place of brokenness to blessedness? Well, let's answer that in a second. But this is, the, this is what happens when God touches us with his redemption power. He brings us from a place, as we've talked about, death to life, emptiness to fullness, but also from brokenness to blessedness. From brokenness to blessedness. We see that this story was, once again, much greater than Ruth and Boaz. It was about King David and Israel's history and redemption. And more than that, it was about the world and Jesus Christ, King Jesus, and our redemption and our eternal life. And that's what happens when God touches something. It multiplies exponentially. For example, I've told you guys a story before about 
about a discouraged, a discouraged Sunday school teacher who had a kid in his class who was always disrupting and, and, and never behaving. And In fact, this kid applied for church membership. True story. You can read about this kid's autobiography. He applied for church membership in his church, and he was, he was denied membership in his church because, I mean, he was just such a mess. And they, and, and they wrote about him that nobody has ever seemed more unqualified for the ministry than this kid. Well, he missed a Sunday school one day, so the Sunday school teacher, his name is Edward Kimball, he says, well, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to put it out there, I'm just going to put it out there, I'm going to lead this kid to Christ. He puts, his, he puts his hand on the shoulder of this kid who's working at a shoe store, this is the mid-1800s, and he calls him by name, Dwight, do you know Christ? And he leads him to Christ. You, you, you want to know who that kid is? D.L. D. Moody, the greatest, one of the greatest evangelists that the world has ever known. Well, D.L. Moody grew up to be this powerful evangelist, and he was ministering, and then there's this very discouraged minister from England. His name was Wilbur Chapman, and Wilbur Chapman was, was really discouraged, and he had a conversation with D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody poured into him and told him something that really ministered to him. D.L. Moody told Wilbur Chapman, he said, let me tell you what made all the difference in my life. Somebody told me this, and I'll tell, you to, to tell, tell it to you, and if you apply it, it'll make all the difference in your life, too. The world has yet to see what God will do through the man who is totally surrendered to him. With that, it changed Wilbur Chapman's life. He totally surrendered his life to Christ, and then it resulted in anointing and blessing. And as a result of that, he began ministering this, this retired baseball player, professional baseball player named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday became a great evangelist, and as a result of Billy Sunday's ministry, a group of men were stirred to passion and to see their community saved in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they invited a, an evangelist in named Mordecai Ham, and Mordecai Ham stood up and shared the gospel. And and this 15-year-old kid came forward that night and got saved, and his name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham, who has shared the gospel to more people, and more people have resulted in, in being saved than anybody else in history. And you look at that discouraged Sunday school teacher, 100 years later, or 100 years earlier, going into a shoe store, leading some kid to Christ, and not thinking anything of it, but fast forward time 100 years, and the chain reaction of all those people who came to Christ, all the way up to Billy Graham. What is that? That's what happens when God touches something. It results in exponential blessing. Even if you're in brokenness, especially if you're in brokenness. This is what our Redeemer does. Our Redeemer who has the relationship with us. Our Redeemer who has the resources, righteousness and His blood and death and resurrection. Our Redeemer who absolutely has the resolve. He will bring us from a place of death to life, from emptiness to fullness, from barrenness and brokenness to a place of blessedness. Where He touches our life and multiplies us Exponentially, But there's a link, isn't there? There's Ruth chapter 1 and 2, and there's Ruth chapter 4. How do you go from there to there? Well, it's Ruth chapter 3. That's the bridge. And Ruth chapter 3, Ruth went, and she put herself at the mercy of Boaz. She surrendered, basically, at, her, at his feet. And she said, if you'll redeem me, then I will be yours. And he said, I will absolutely redeem you. And for us, we've got to come to a place of absolute surrender to Jesus. You want Jesus to take you from a place of death to life? You want Jesus and his great resurrection, redemptive power to take you from a place of emptiness 
to fullness? You want Jesus and His great resurrection, redemptive power to bring you from a place of brokenness to blessedness? Then you've got to put yourself at His feet. And you've got to say, I will completely surrender my life to you if you'll redeem me. And He will absolutely redeem your past. Lou Johnson lost a ring. My dog lost her freedom. Ruth and Naomi lost their husbands and they lost their land. What have you lost? What have you lost? Have you lost your hope? Have you lost all circumstantial reason to hope any longer? Have you lost your heart? Have you lost your ability to persevere? Have you lost your boldness? Do you feel like you've lost your anointing? Have you lost your joy? Have you lost family? What have you lost? If you'll place yourself humbly at the feet of Christ, your Redeemer, He will bring you from a place of barrenness and brokenness to blessedness. But you have to surrender, total surrender to Christ. What are you holding back? What's preventing you from surrendering at the feet of your Redeemer? What's preventing you from casting all of your hope in your Redeemer? What's holding you back? Some of you may be missing something very basic as as tithing of your resources. 10%, first check. I did that yesterday or the day before. I, it feels so good just to give that first 10%. It's like, whew, my, my, my 100% won't be cursed. My, my 90 plus percent will be, will be blessed. Maybe you need to surrender to the Lord in terms of your finances. Have you, have you wondered why there's always more, more uh, month than there is money? <laughs> Maybe what, 100% of what you have is cursed. You don't, you don't steward. You don't budget. You uh, you don't plan, put 10%, the first 10%, go to tithe. I, I, you guys know I don't get up here and talk about money every week. I don't. I, I, I seldomly do. But if you're tired of being financially frustrated, then get your house in order. Get your first 10%, at least, your first 10% to the storehouse, the local church. Your second 10%, put away it in savings. And then God will take that, that, that 80% and do more with it than you can do with the 100%. Maybe you're tired of your finances being frustrated. Well, get your house in order. Tithe. 10%. But 10% in savings. Watch God bless. He'll do it. It's supernatural. It's spiritual. God will bless your finances. He'll give you a spirit of wisdom. Maybe you need to be committed. Maybe you needed to be devoted. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a king. If David had a choice of living decades as the king of Israel or just one more day in the house of the Lord, he would have chosen that one more day in the house of the Lord. It was more honorable to him to be an usher in the house of God than the king of Israel. And maybe you guys are passionate about using your gifts and talents in the workplace or vocationally or for your own name or whatever it is. But but there is no more honorable and worthwhile purpose than to invest what God has given you in terms of spiritual gifts and abilities and knacks and time than the local church. I am passionate about picking kids up in a van. I I delegated that off, not because I wanted to. I just, I I, I can't hoard the ministry, you know. I'm passionate about folding a bulletin. There's nothing in the household of the Lord that is not eternal. If it's done with love. And maybe you need to say, you know what? I'm going to commit to my time and resources and my spiritual gifts to the ministry of the local church. Maybe at school, or maybe at work, or maybe with your next-door neighbor, you're very close-lipped. They don't know you're a Christian. 
You don't give them your time. You don't give them your joy. You don't give them your energy. You, you, you don't give them your love. And maybe you need to minister to them with a bona fide relationship. Or maybe there's some sin in your life and you're holding back. There's always going to be despair in your heart if you're, if you're holding something back. If there's some holdout area in your life, some sin, some lack of purity, some lack of holiness, some point of bitterness, if there's something in your life that you're holding back from Christ's lordship over you, then you're going to be stuck in barrenness. You're going to be stuck in brokenness. You're going to be stuck in Ruth chapter 1 and 2. You're, you're going to be stuck in emptiness. But when we put it all out there, when we hold nothing back, maybe, maybe your Bible at home is collecting dust. Maybe you don't remember when the last time you've had a devotional time with the Lord. Maybe you're not walking with God. Maybe He's not your sustenance throughout the day. And maybe you need to dust off the Bible and maybe you need to commit daily, God, I'm going to seek your face, not only in my time with you, but all throughout the day. I'm going to hunger and thirst for you. I'm going to seek you and seek you and seek you until you show me your glory, until you show me your face, until I draw closer, until you fill me with your spirit, overflowing. Do you need to surrender to the Lord? What do you need to surrender? It's different for all of us, but would you stand with me, please? I know this much. Whatever you need to surrender, if you give God all of your heart and all of your soul, He will take it up and He will redeem it. He will redeem whatever you've lost. He'll redeem it. This is what God does. This is, this is who He is. Tiger Woods does what? golf. Kobe Bryant does what? Basketball, right? What does Jesus do? Redemption. This is what he does. He takes what is lost and he brings us to a place of multiplication. He brings us from emptiness to fullness. He brings life out of death. He brings us from a place of brokenness to a place of blessedness. But the link is total surrender. He'll accept nothing less than absolute surrender, follower of Christ. So maybe in your sanctification, you've stumped, you, 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 you've stalled out. Well, it's time to surrender and say, I'm 100% yours. Because Dale Moody's encouraging statement that he made to Wilbur Chapman is the same for us today. The world has yet to see what God will do through the person who is totally consecrated to him. Will you be that person? This morning, this stage here is going to represent an altar where we surrender. And we surrender our heart, we surrender our mind, we surrender whatever we're holding back, and we, in surrendering, we cast our hope on Jesus Christ who redeems and will bring you from a place of emptiness to fullness and brokenness to blessedness. Would you bow your heads with me? If you would like to transfer, if you would like Christ who does it, to carry you from brokenness to blessedness. Raise your hand. Okay. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Know this. The pressure's off you. You can't do it. You can't carry yourself from blessedness, from brokenness to blessedness. You have to have a redeemer. But this is what Christ does. But if you're willing to totally surrender yourself to Christ's lordship in your life, would you raise your hand? Okay. Well then... Let's respond to the Lord. In a very intimate time with the Lord, cast your cares, cast your life, 
cast your heart, your mind, your resources, your, your, your soul, your spirit, your time, your gifts, your, your, your heart, your love, cast your holiness, righteousness, cast everything upon Christ and let him be your redeemer.